Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Will Oremus. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, the partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, February 5th. On today's show, we'll check in on net neutrality. Last Friday, a D.C. Court of Appeals heard oral arguments for the biggest court challenge to the repeal of the open Internet rules that happened last year. It had all the challenges against the FCC's gutting of net neutrality rolled into one. And on the week of Facebook's 15th birthday, we'll talk about what else? Its latest privacy scandal. This one involved paying people, including teens, to use a special research app that gave Facebook a sort of backdoor access to their mobile phones. But in honor of the anniversary, we'll also talk a bit about where the company came from, where it's going, and why all the doomsaying predictions about Facebook haven't seemed to come true, at least not yet. And then we'll discuss PACER, the federal judiciary's electronic record system that has been raking in millions in fees to give people access to public court records. We'll be joined by Deepak Gupta, an attorney who is leading the class action lawsuit against PACER that alleges the system grossly overcharges. And as always, we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best stories we saw online this week. That's all coming up on If Then. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Horton's new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. All right, April. I am joining you from beautiful Newark, Delaware on a balmy February day. And you are stuck in the snowy Bay Area. Uh, I guess uh, you're probably jealous, but we can't all live in Delaware, <laughs> Yeah, right? super jealous. It is a little snowy here, especially on the tops of the hills, uh, in the Oakland Hills and, and around the, the Bay Area. There is some snow, which is very rare here. And, you know, of course, really my, my heart goes out to, to those who are having to weather this very, very um, cold period uh, without homes. I know that the shelters are incredibly full and we have, you know, a huge uh, homeless population here that's ever growing uh, as really state continues to skyrocket. So um, my heart certainly goes out to them. Yeah, that's true. And so many people live outside because they just don't expect this kind of cold snap. Uh, but April, let's jump into net neutrality. You reported on the latest developments in the appeal to last year's rule, which basically overturned net neutrality. What's going on there? Yeah. So kind of the best remaining chance for restoring net neutrality, or one of the best remaining chances, had a key day in court on Friday. Um, the U.S. Court of Appeals in, in D.C. heard oral arguments uh, in the lawsuit to overturn the FCC's 2017 repeal of the net neutrality rules. Um, right now, to be clear, there are no net neutrality rules in the U.S. The, uh, the repeal officially went uh, on the books or actually like went into effect in June of uh, 2018. And that means that right now there's really nothing stopping companies like Comcast or Verizon and AT- or AT&T uh, from slowing down access to certain websites or even blocking certain websites or, or charging a fee to reach users at faster speeds. All the companies need to do at this point is say that they reserve the right to do so in their terms of service. The, the challenge to that repeal, yeah, was uh, the oral arguments were heard on Friday. 
super interesting, actually, because all the challenges of which there are so many were rolled into to one case. So uh, so the judge heard the judge, the panel of judges rather heard 75 minutes on each side, um, both you know from the ISPs and the FCC arguing for the repeal and um, a cadre of a really diverse set of public interest groups, state attorneys, generals, uh, small businesses like Etsy. Uh, arguing against the repeal and in favor of restoring the net neutrality protections. So a uh, lively day on Friday kind of for the future of the Internet. And, it, you know, we haven't seen, at least I haven't seen a lot of headlines about the, the carriers taking advantage of the net neutrality repeal yet and like charging differential prices for different access to different types of websites or charging people extra to stream Netflix mm. with their Internet connection. Do you think they're they're just holding back to see how the court case resol- is resolved? Do you think that nobody wants to be the first one to get the negative press for that? Uh, or, or do you think it's possible that that maybe they they won't do it because it would well, because there would be a backlash. You're, you're wrong. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, go, uh, that, that tell agent, me where I'm there, wrong. There, there certainly um, has been uh, instances where ISPs have been caught throttling Internet service uh, since the repeal, uh, particularly last June. Um, Verizon was caught throttling Internet service of the Santa Clara Fire Department while it was in the middle of responding to massive wildfires throughout Northern California, and it forced the emergency responders to pay twice as much to lift the data restrictions. Verizon said that was a customer service error. But uh, but the Santa Clara Fire Department says that this is absolutely a net neutrality issue and that Verizon was, was you know, flexing the power that it has now with the rules off the books. There's also uh, been a study, I believe, from Northeastern University saying that ISPs have been throttling, uh, not just ISPs, but wireless carriers, rather, have been throttling access to video streaming sites. And the truth is, is that, like, this may be happening across the board at different times of the day in intermittent ways, and we just don't know it because the way that this type of throttling works is such that you can't really see the whites of their eyes when it's happening, right? It's like you may find that it's uh, slower to access one website and you don't know why that's happening. You just navigate to another website. And then like a few hours later, during a less peak time, it's faster. And, you know, they can just do this in such kind of insidious ways because they have so much control over how we connect to information. It's very hard to know uh, what the source of that disruption or or that slowed connection really is coming from. Uh, but but there, there has been instance, I think that the Santa Clara Fire Department is really the most stark one um, of... Uh, uh, of these companies kind of flexing their ability to uh, control how we connect. Okay, right. So it sounds like they might actually be taking advantage of the lack of net neutrality now in ways that we just can't see. Um, what do you think are the prospects for this appeal? Is it seen as as having much of a chance? Uh, and when will we find out? I mean, the uh, people who are opposed to the repeal do have um, a strong case in that uh, in that the Trump's FCC did overturn the net neutrality rules when they were pretty fresh on the books and uh, and were already, you know, passed and, and there's just, you know, not a lot of um, research or, or, or precedent or justification for the repeal and the research that uh, Ajit Pai, the chairman of the FCC, has cited um, to, to, to kind of uh, bolster his argument for the repeal uh, doesn't really hold that much water. He said that... Um, that the net neutrality rules has deterred investment from Internet service providers uh, in building out and expanding their networks. But when we go back to the investor calls of Internet service providers uh, before the net neutrality repeal, they said they were investing in their networks. And then oddly, uh, their investor calls after the repeal, they said that uh, that they've actually reduced uh, investment in their networks. So, uh, so you know, we, we definitely... Um, 
don't don't see a lot of consistency from the side in favor of the repeal. There's also the comment system where, where the public was asked to participate and weigh in as to whether or not they favored net neutrality was just rife with corruption. We saw bots, comments from dead people, from uh, foreign, primarily Russian email addresses, fake you know, DDoS attack that the FCC claimed happened that it turns out didn't happen. Um, and so just a lot kind of muddying the process uh, that that kind of, I, I think, puts the case in, in favor of those who are arguing against uh, the repeal. Um, but no matter what happens, uh, there's going to be an appeal. <laughs> so, you know, we can expect the ISPs to appeal the decision uh, if if net neutrality, if the net neutrality repeal is overturned. We can uh, expect public interest groups to um, appeal the decision if uh, if the the judges decide to uh, to to keep the net neutrality repeal in place, so uh, certainly not the end of what's sure to be a very very long ride here. And and of course, in the meantime, I can't stress enough that ISPs do have the right now to throttle. So we'll just keep everything in mind. Uh, Will, uh, you were looking into uh, Facebook and Google, both of which were running apps that were actually paying people, if if I understand correctly, to collect their data, right? And this was just a huge controversy that kind of boiled. Over last week, can you kind of sum up exactly what happened? Because it was a lot of details that that uh, were were confusing to follow, but but it seemed um, pretty sketch. Right. So last week, TechCrunch reported that Facebook had been running an app. It was called Facebook Research. What Facebook was doing was they would pay people, including teenagers, to install this app on their phone. Once installed on their phone, it would send, it would gather the data on everything you did on your iPhone and then send that to Facebook so that Facebook could analyze not just what you're doing in the Facebook app or not just your browsing behavior, but everything you do on your phone, how much time you're spending on other apps, how you're using them. It basically got full access to to everything you do on your phone. This was against Apple's rules. It was it was a misuse of something called the Enterprise Developer Certificate that Apple gives to big companies like Facebook and Google that need to not only run public-facing apps, but be able to test apps internally with their employees, um, run uh, apps that are specifically made for their employees. Apple considered this an abuse of that certificate, so they revoked the certificate. That actually hit Facebook pretty hard for a day or two. It meant that all these internal apps that Facebook was using to test new versions of Facebook or new versions of, of WhatsApp or Instagram or whatever else stopped working all of a sudden. In fact, there was some reporting by The Verge that even Facebook's employee lunch menu app, which which used the certificate, shut down so nobody could figure out what was for lunch at, at Facebook's <laughs> Menlo Park headquarters that day. That's funny. Um, and, and then it came out that Google had been doing almost the same thing. They had, a, they had a, a similar research app called ScreenWise Meter. It was not quite as insidious for in, in technical ways, but it was also in clear violation of Apple's rules. It was gathering data that Apple doesn't allow developers to, to gather on people who use iPhones. So then Google got the, the temporary ban as well. They're now both, they both have their developer certificates restored. They're, they're back up and running in terms of their internal apps. But a lot of people took from this not only the, the sort of invasive uh, privacy practices by Facebook and Google, but also the power that Apple has to just all of a sudden bring research and testing at, at two of the other biggest Silicon Valley tech companies to a screeching halt when it decides that they've broken the rules. So just to be clear, the users were cognizant that they were giving away a vast amount of personal data, but they were actually getting money for this. So what was the privacy foul here? Because it seems like you could getting paid for your data is at least a better exchange than being served, you know, uh, 
kind of uh, pernicious ads, right, or targeted ads. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that way. I mean, you you actually have activists who, like Jaron Lanier, who have called for uh, people to get paid for their data, right? And that's exactly what was happening here. There are uh, quite a few apps out there, apparently, that uh, will pay you to give various companies access to everything you do. And yes, they were they were cognizant that they were turning over basically their whole phone to Facebook. The app was called Facebook Research, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't masking who was behind it or anything like that. And one of our colleagues, Shannon Palace, actually went out and talked to some of the people who who downloaded the app. Some of them said, yeah, I knew it was really shady. Uh, I would never use my real phone for this. I used like a fake burner phone uh, and got paid. Oh, interesting. Uh, so it wasn't even good data. Maybe. Right. Okay. Some of it might not have been good data, but other people were like, actually, this is a great rate. You know, they were paying us 20 bucks, 30 bucks a month in, e- in e-gift cards. And other companies, when we try to sell them our data, they'll only give us 10 bucks a month. So they were, they were like, I hope this doesn't mean that the, that the app is going away uh, because we like getting paid for our for our data. But if there's a privacy foul, I mean, it's probably the fact that that arguably nobody should really be able to give up this much. I mean, you get you're giving Facebook full control over your phone. It, it has what's called root access. The privacy foul, if, if there was one, was probably had to do with targeting teens. So teens who were targeted by Facebook as a specific market research group with this app, they were supposed to get parental consent, but reporting suggests that the that the mechanisms were not at all robust. Like Nobody really checked if your parents had consented or if you just checked a box saying, yeah, my parents consented. So that seems pretty shady. For Facebook, the reason they're doing this is is it's actually a, a bit of a of a repeat of something that happened before. They had bought a VPN company called Anavo, and they were running a VPN called Anavo Protect. And uh, they actually there was some some reporting that showed they used the data from people's phones via Anavo Protect to see the the surge in usage of WhatsApp before they bought WhatsApp. And so they could see, oh look, you know, there's this percentage of of phone users who are spending. F- hours and hours a day on WhatsApp. And that helped Facebook approach WhatsApp and make this what seemed like at the time a big overpay for a a messaging app that most people in the United States hadn't even heard of. Um, But it, of course, turned out to be a great acquisition for Facebook. And it was because they had that special insight that they weren't really supposed to have. You know, I feel like there's so many blemishes on Facebook's record now. It's like every week, like if I don't hear something one week about something like terrible or creepy or like off-putting that Facebook is doing, it's a strange week. So, um, you know, this definitely was kind of uh, caused my jaw to drop for a second, but what I wasn't like necessarily super surprised. And and that is a reminder that Facebook has been in the game of collecting data on us for free, uh, not paid in this, in this previous case we were talking about, but free uh, use of the platform for 15 years now. It celebrated a birthday. Was it today on Tuesday or was it Monday of this week, Will? Yeah, that was Monday. And uh, they did celebrate a birthday and they had something to celebrate, actually. Um, They had a really big earnings report last week where they showed that Facebook was growing in basically every major market around the world. The surprise there is that Facebook had sort of plateaued or seemed to have plateaued in uh, the United States and Canada, some of its more mature markets. But even there, it saw a growth in users. It was a, it was a small growth, but it kind of undermined the idea that everybody's quitting Facebook. And, and the, you know, the delete Facebook campaign obviously did not have the kind of impact on Facebook that, say, the delete Uber campaign seems to have had 
on Uber. And and what's more, there's there's no real alternative to Facebook like there was Lyft for Uber that you can just easily sort of swap in. So it looks like Facebook is is still growing. And and whoever has deleted the app has been outnumbered by new people who are joining or becoming active again. So that was kind of a surprise. And it, it, it sent their stock uh, back upward, which is a direction it hadn't been going for a little while. Yeah, you know, I don't think that this is a sign that people are unconcerned with Facebook's fouls. I think it's a sign that Facebook has a stranglehold on the market <laughs> and uh, and will continue to grow if people want to participate, like, I don't know, in social life or like political discussions that inform the way we live. So uh, it, it's, it's, it's interesting. I know that people are kind of interpreting this as perhaps um, a, a kind of a forgiveness of Facebook, but I, I don't really see it that way. Yeah. And, and, well, Mark Zuckerberg did a post uh, in, in conjunction with Facebook's 15th right. birthday, and he seems, for one, to be ready to turn the page on all these privacy scandals. I mean, he's he's talking about looking to the future and building new things and, and new experiences. He had a little bit of a, like, haters going to hate line in there about how there's a tendency of some people to lament the, this change, to overly emphasize the negative, um, but he's going to keep on trucking and Facebook's going to keep on building stuff and, and the critics can, you know, go, uh, go criticize if they please. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll come back with our interview with attorney Deepak Gupta, a lead attorney on a lawsuit challenging the validity of PACER. That's the electronic court records system that charges 10 cents per page run by the federal judiciary. Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our guest today is attorney Deepak Gupta, a Supreme Court and appellate lawyer whose work focuses on constitutional law, class actions, and consumer and workers' rights. He co-founded the firm Gupta Wessler, which is representing the nonprofit groups that have filed a class action lawsuit against the U.S. government to recover alleged overcharges from the PACER system. Deepak Gupta, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with some definitions here because I know what PACER is, um, somewhat to my chagrin. It stands for the Public Access to Court Electronics Records. It's an acronym. Um, it's a website that I've spent a fair amount of time trying to navigate. But can you tell us exactly what it is? It, it's part of the federal judiciary, right? Yeah, it is. And, you know, in the olden days, if you wanted to find out what a court was doing, you would maybe go down to the court and, and look through the files. And in the, you know, in 2019, the way you do that is you go online and you pull up this system that is not exactly the most up-to-date technology. It looks like you're visiting a website maybe from the late 90s or early 2000s. Right. But but it is a website that has uh, gives you the ability to have access to all of the things that are filed in federal courts around the country. So when someone files a lawsuit, if uh, the judge makes a decision and all the many things that happen in between – you know, most of that happens through these filings electronically. 
Um, and there's a lot of stuff that doesn't happen in the courtroom. So, you know, we know that courtrooms are public, right? You can show mm-hmm. up and you can watch the proceedings. But if you want to know a lot of what's really going on, you have to get onto this this system and download documents from it. Great. And let's zoom out even a little further. Why does it matter that the public has access to what's going on in courtrooms? And, and why should the public have access to, to court records? Why is that important? Well, I mean, the the courts are one of the three branches of, of our government. And they're actually the, the branch of government that, if you think about it, has the most direct, immediate connection with people's lives. When someone is, you know, foreclosed on on their mortgage or um, someone is litigating a, a bitter dispute that might determine their liberty, whether they go to prison, those things happen in the courts. Um, and so that's where the laws that are passed by Congress and signed by the president have the most immediate impact. And it's always been the rule, uh, going back to the founding of the republic, that the courts are open um, and that's considered a constitutional right that you have um, to go in and to understand what the courts are doing. And um, and in the digital age, that happens online. And so the question in this case that we're litigating is about you know, whether or not people are going to have the right to freely access this branch of government and understand what it's doing, um, particularly when it affects them or when they're trying to understand it so they can educate the public. Right. And so journalists uh, are also a, a client of Pacer. Who, who, who are you representing in this lawsuit? So our clients, uh, we have three what are called named plaintiffs in a class action, and that is the, the National Veterans Legal Services Program, uh, the National Consumer Law Center, and the Alliance for Justice, which is like sort of a nonprofit of nonprofits. It represents about 150 nonprofit advocacy groups. And they all care about this because they represent people, a lot of times poor people, who need access to the justice system and where having this paywall really inhibits their ability to use the justice system. But this is now a nationwide class action on behalf of all people who have paid in to PACER. And that includes not just the kinds of people represented by these organizations, but it also includes academic researchers, um, journalists, uh, really anyone who is who cares about the courts and is trying to interact with and understand the courts. So why do we think they're charging so much for this access? I mean, as you pointed out, it surely isn't costing them much to provide it. Yeah, I mean, I think this is it's kind of a story of bureaucratic inertia or mission creep. I think when this started, it started back in the late 80s and early 90s and you know, you had dial-up connections. They actually started charging initially by the minute. So it was a dollar per minute. (laughs) And then the charges went down when they realized they didn't need to charge that much. So I think initially, they understood that the government isn't supposed to be profiting from a service like this. And they were just trying to recoup the cost of setting up what was then, you know, an innovative thing, an online system. Over time, what's happened is that all of this revenue has been coming in and the judiciary has used has been using it, it, it. Some people have said as a kind of slush fund. Um, at the same time, that the cost of electronic storage and distribution has gone down to virtually nothing. Um, and so now, in in 2019, it really is not possible to justify having that kind of revenue for for something that I think people assume should be free. Um, and it's not just a bad. Uh, policy, it's also illegal because in 2002, Congress passed a law called the E-Government Act. um, And it was pretty clear if you look at what Congress was trying to do, they were saying to the federal judiciary, stop charging so much. Only charge 
what you absolutely have to, we think you should be able to make this free. But at the very least, don't charge people more than the cost of operating this system. Right. Libraries run all kinds of, you know, free open databases that I think are much more complicated than um, a basic just kind of, you know, text-based um, records database, uh, you know, and just to yeah. give some numbers, Pacer, Pacer is quite profitable. If, if I understand correctly from looking at uh, kind of your past cases, in 2014, the site made $145 million in fees, but you guys, are, but, you know, it's estimated that it should only cost about $30 million to run. Where is all this extra money going? It's going to all sorts of things that the judiciary wants to be able to do, whether it's flat screens for jurors in the courtroom or notifying people about bankruptcies or studies that they're doing. Uh, there's one study that was actually the state courts in Mississippi. So you kind of – it's pretty unrelated to this. Um, and I want to be clear. We don't have any objection to the courts doing those kinds of things. If they think jurors in the jury box should have flat screens, great. There's nothing wrong with that. I think the problem here is that that should come from money that's appropriated from Congress. It shouldn't be this system of, of records is used as a way of generating profit for the judiciary because that's just it's, – it's not a very large portion of the judiciary's budget, but it has an enormous impact on the people that are trying to access this information and use it. I wonder if it has made a difference, the fact that, you know, media companies used to be able to pay for this kind of stuff, no problem, because they used to be extremely profitable. And now yeah. media companies, a lot of them are, are having to cut everywhere they can, cutting journalists, cutting back to the bone, making their newspapers tiny. And all of a sudden, these fees that they used to be able to just uh, write off without a second thought look like uh, something that they might not be able to afford. Yeah, I think that's totally right. I mean, you know, I know I have a lot of friends who are journalists and they all complain about this if they've ever had to do any kind of reporting about the courts. A lot of journalists are, are freelance and so it, it's a real cost to them. And even as you say, for for media organizations in a, in a difficult business environment, this is a big deal. Um, but, but I also think um, there's just a way people ought to appreciate that just having a paywall precludes – certain kinds of research or journalistic activity, sort of no matter what your budget is. And that's because if you're trying to look for patterns, you're trying to look at lots and lots of data across the entire system, it's just not feasible to do that. Um, you're not going to be able to get all of that information because it costs money. And and no, ma no matter how big your organization is, even, you know, even if you're at the, at the New York Times, which is one of the organizations that joined uh, an amicus brief in support of us, even there, those journalists still have to have some kind of budget. And so if they want to look at reams of big data and analyze it to figure out what the courts are up to, they're just not going to be able to do that. Now, you know, that, that reminds me of a, a bit of history I want to uh, go back to uh, before this case launched. Back in 2009, uh, the Justice Department did experiment with a program where it offered free PACER access at 17 libraries across the country. And someone who took advantage of that uh, was someone uh, who's no longer uh, with us, Aaron Swartz, uh, kind of a, a very a prodigious uh, person when it came to um, – uh, kind of liberating things off the internet. And, and Aaron mm -hmm. Swartz wrote a program that downloaded more than 20 million pages of PACER documents from one of these uh, kind of library systems uh, where it was open to use PACER for free. 
And with uh, that, those 20 million pages of, of downloaded documents, he analyzed, you know, he found kind of scores of privacy violations that included kind of the identities and, and the social security numbers of Secret Service agents. And that led to stricter privacy enforcement within the federal courts, right, because he was able to download so much and then analyze uh, and analyze these in mass. Uh, the government then, I think, kind of quashed that free access program uh, because they claimed there was a security breach uh, in in some way, you know, from the way the program worked. But uh, but that just shows what can be done when there is unrestricted access to uh, what seems like it should be public data. Right. And, and I think that that episode with Aaron shows a lot of things. I mean, w- one of the things it illustrates to me is that the government, you know, the, the courts recognized that people are going to need this information and it would be really meaningful to provide it for free. And but they were upset when somebody downloaded a lot of it and then tried to make it accessible to more people. And I think what that shows, unfortunately, is that some of the bureaucrats within the court system started to regard this information as a kind of property that they could hoard and prevent access to it in order to raise the revenue. So the revenue raising function actually started to be a kind of end in itself. And that's never a good thing. And it's a particularly bad thing when it comes to information that that people need in order to get equal access to justice. So what's next on this case? Uh, Like, where is it now? How is it proceeding? What stage are you at? So we filed the case in uh, federal court in Washington, D.C. The judge certified a nationwide class action and then uh, heard from both sides and uh, sort of split the baby in some ways. What the, the judge said was, you know, we agree that um, the government is overcharging people in violation of federal law for for these PACER records. But we don't think um, – we, the court, don't think that all of the charges that the plaintiffs are talking about are overcharges. And in particular, the judge thought it was OK for the, the filing system that the court uh, system uses to be funded mm-hmm. through PACER fees. And so we're now on appeal. We're in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit here in Washington, D.C. We just filed our – our appeal papers, the, the government's going to get a chance to respond, and then we'll have oral argument, presumably, and a, a panel of three judges um, will decide who's right. Um, one of the interesting things that's happened just in the past week is that the friend of the court or amicus briefs came in, and it shows almost just in it, by who's on the, the cover of these briefs how many people are affected by PACER fees in such a diverse way. Um, and so you have... Um, a whole bunch of, I think it's 27 media organizations um, complaining about the effect on journalists and, and investigative journalism. Um, you have the the sponsor of the e-government act, Senator Lieberman, um, talking about what Congress intended when it put limits on these fees. You have actually former federal judges, this is pretty unusual, Wow! Um, fi- that filed a brief in support of us. Um, talking about why this is bad policy for the judiciary to be charging people for these um, for these records. We've got a, a brief by um, tech companies that are these um, innovative new tech companies that are trying to make the law free and accessible to as many people as possible. And the PACER paywall makes it hard for them to do that because they can't get the raw data, these court files that really should belong to all of us. Um, so it's a really interesting um, collection of friend of the court briefs that I, I hope will show the court 
just just by virtue of these stories and the different ways that people are affected, that this is a, a really big deal because it might might not seem like a big deal. You know, ten cents per page for court records. Why does that really matter? Well, it, it really has enormous impacts on the ground um, for so many people, and it just it's just sort of crazy or preposterous that in two thousand nineteen that they're charging people to download PDF files. I mean, that's really all this is. I don't mm-hmm. want people to think that this is some sort of sophisticated system. All it does is allow you to download PDF files. There's there's really nothing more to it than that. Right. And, you know, I, I, I one, one last question I have, and I um, just want to say I'm biased on this as a journalist who has had to navigate uh, the Pacer system. And, you know, when you open the website, it feels like it's it's from the 90s or that a moth is going to fly out yeah. of your computer wearing a button that says, you know, vote for Hoover or something like that. But it's just really, really an old website and quite janky. Um, but locally, uh, where I am, at least here in, in, in Oakland, in Alameda County, they charge a dollar per page to access court records. And and I know across the country, similarly, there's all kinds of restrictions, some monetary, some requiring you to have a bar number, right. you know, things like that. What will this federal case, uh, will, will this federal case have an effect on, on you know, these, these local systems that are at times even uh, more of a stranglehold uh, on access to information? Well, I think it probably won't have a direct effect in the sense that the federal law mm-hmm. we're suing under only binds the federal government. We do have some background constitutional principles that we're invoking, one of which is the the First Amendment. And I should mention that the ACLU and the Cato Institute and a bunch of other First Amendment groups have filed in support of us to make those arguments. So it's possible that those kinds of arguments, the constitutional arguments, will affect the state courts. But, But I also think the bigger picture here is that what this case exposes is that it makes no sense to have a paywall for this kind of information in courts. And, and what I hope that does is it prompts some policymaking changes um, in the in legislative branches um, around the country. And, and as you say, I mean, there are some state court systems where the problem is even worse. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. state courts are the front lines. I mean, when people are dealing yeah. with, with, you know, criminal justice or they're dealing with, with banks that are trying to take away their homes or all sorts of problems, those things happen more in the state courts than the federal courts. So, in, in some ways, this is just the tip of the iceberg of a, of a much bigger problem. All right. Well, I'm going to continue to follow this case as I have been for three years now. It seems like it's moving forward, but much more to come. Deepak Gupta, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great talking to you. One final quick break, and then we'll have Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we've seen on the web this week. Hey, Will, so uh, what could you not close this week? What did you want to share with us? Well, actually, April, first, I want to kick it back to you because there's a piece that I know you're working on that I'm really curious about um, that has to do with Flickr deleting people's photos, right? Can you just tell us, can I use Can I use part of my tab to get you to tell me what that story is about? Because it's going to be out soon, I know. Yeah, yeah. It should be like publishing like as <laughs> we're recording this, actually. We're going back and forth on headlines right now. Um, but it is about, um, and thank you, by the way, um, it is about the website Flickr, which was formerly owned by Yahoo, but got purchased by, a, I think, a villainously named company called SmugMug <laughs> last year. Um, and SmugMug is dropping the model that gave users a terabyte of free online storage 
storage. Um, and instead is switching to a $50 a year service that gives users unlimited storage, but for a fee. And I just kind of think it's a reminder uh, to us that have kind of come to rely on free cloud-based photo storage, um, which is basically anybody who's ever, you know, lost a memory card or uses Facebook as for family albums or, you know, uses Flickr and PhotoBucket still because they did 10 years ago and so they just keep using it, um, that these platforms uh, might be helping them store their photos but they're companies, right? They 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 can do what they want with your pictures, and that includes deleting them. Uh, it includes um, running ads against them and and making a tremendous profit, changing their terms of service, and handing the photos to the police, or using facial recognition to map our relationships, or as Instagram, you know, did in 2012 when it changed its terms of service to be able to um, actually use photos for ads or, or Yahoo in 2014 actually moved to sell users' uh, Creative Commons license photos as wall art, right, without giving users or the photographers any cut of that profit. Um, and so, uh, it, you know, it's really a, a moment to, to, to reflect on maybe the relationship between convenience and autonomy. It's something I believe I've spoken about before on this show or before on the show, but um but when we when we really no longer own the artifacts of our memories, which are photographs in a way, but trust a company to do it for us, that those those photographs can can be can be disappeared or deleted. Um, and uh, and it's kind of a reminder that we should keep backups and we should kind of maintain a sense of autonomy and and own and kind of keep things uh, in places where we still have the keys, even if we decide to share them on big platforms, uh, and even if we enjoy getting likes and and comments with old friends on memories um we should maintain some way to uh to keep them ourselves or, or else um you know they could all just get lost the, the ephemerality the kind of corporate ephemerality uh really uh is something that i was kind of meditating on in this piece and um and also people who um who use Flickr, you're probably listening to this on on Wednesday when the podcast comes out or a few days after we're recording it. Um they're going to be deleting uh those photos from accounts that have not been touched in years. <laughs> um so go back, get your photos. Uh you might still have a chance, but um but they are doing a mass deletion. So yeah, just a reminder of that these services are are out for themselves, not for us even if we kind of use them for our memory banks. Yeah, and for me it's also a reminder that when we talk about trusting companies with our data, it's not enough to just trust the current version of that company. You also have to worry about what that company might become, right? I mean, Yahoo kind of had this King Midas in reverse thing going on for years where every startup that it acquired, it like turned gold into dust. Um, and uh, <laughs> and Flickr, Flickr was one of those. But and now, you know, now Yahoo is a shell of itself and was with the remnants of that were acquired by Verizon. It was it sold off, you know, its, its acquisitions. There was Flickr, there was um, that Tumblr and Delicious were other acquisitions that went awry, but Flickr got sold off uh, for parts. And so who knows who will end up owning the stuff that today we're giving to companies that, you know, that seem reputable. Anyway, good luck, Flickr users or former Flickr users. Um, get your photos back now before it's too late. Uh, <laughs> Will, um, since you gave me a chance to talk about my own piece, um, what else could you not close this week? Is there something that you wanted to discuss uh, that, that you really liked besides, um, besides this thing I wanted to kind of talk about with Flickr? All right. My tabs this week were all of the variants on a classic internet blog post what time is the Super Bowl? <laughs> this is this dates to 2011 when when the Huffington Post 
wrote a, a, an article called What Time is the Super Bowl? And the whole point of the article was just to answer the question, what time is the Super Bowl? And they did it because HuffPost was, was early to this game of looking at what searches were trending on Google and then writing articles to uh, specifically to appear at the top of those search results. And this ended up being like a massive traffic hit for HuffPost because everybody needs to know what time the Super Bowl is. And so they type it into Google and they would pull up Huffington Post's article and they would see HuffPost's ads and HuffPost got paid. Uh, and over the years, it has become, uh, it first became sort of a cliche, like every site wanted to get in on this. And then people started having fun with it and doing like, I've written so many. Have you really? <laughs> What's your just as like as like a young digital journalist uh, coming up? Yeah, just like, you know, write a quick what time is the blah, blah, blah. Yeah, post. that's Absolutely. that's funny. Yeah. So and, and the newer version is like how to live stream the Super Bowl, right? Or how to how watch to the watch. Olympics yeah, online for free. Yeah. But uh, but my actual tab is is all of the little variants that have spun off. Like people have fun with it now. It's become sort of a meme and people do meta stories. So I collected some of my favorite uh, meta what time is the Super Bowl post this year. So let's see. The Verge's Lauren Grush, that's their space reporter, said, what time were the Super Bowl or what time is the Super Bowl across the solar system? And so it, it looks at like what time the Super Bowl game would have reached all the different planets. Um, Sports Illustrated went a step further. Their story was called what time is the Super Bowl? We asked theoretical physicist Carlo Rovelli, and then they have this Q&A with, with Rovelli, who's a famous theoretical physicist, who is, is talking about the, the, microses, the microseconds involved in transmitting the Super Bowl, the footage of the Super Bowl from the field um, through the wires to your screen, and then also, you know, relativity and the fact that uh, the people who are, I don't know, closer to the Earth's surface, the time moves slower than those further away because of tiny differentials in gravity. So that was kind of funny. Um, Slate's Matthew Desim got in on it. He had one called What Time Were the Super Bowls, in which he helpfully posted the times in UTC of every Super Bowl in history up to 2018. However, he could not include this year's Super Bowl because it hadn't happened yet at the time he wrote it. So if you read to the end of his story, you did not get the answer to your question. Um, the New York Times did uh, a story on the superb owl, which is a, a typo of Super Bowl. Um, and they were trying to get in on a little bit of that superb owl, accidental Google search traffic. Um, and finally, Deadspin did a story called, what time, does, what time Does the Super Bowl Start Start? where they looked at how early the websites start putting up their what time does the Super Bowl start posts on the web to try to garner oh, the maximum traffic. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, well, uh, I'm glad that we can make fun of ourselves as journalists. I think it's something that we're good at because people hate on us <laughs> so much. Um, but a really fun tab, Will. Thanks so much. All right. And that'll do it for our show this week. You can get updates about what's coming next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will Oremus. And big thanks again to our guest Deepak Gupta. You can find him at Deepak Gupta Law on Twitter. And also a big, big thanks to everyone who's left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We deeply appreciate your time in doing that. It's super cool of y'all, and we read them, and it makes us smile, especially when they're nice. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Alberto Hernandez for engineering here in Chile, Berkeley. Thanks also to Nick Holmes at Occupy Studios in Newark, Delaware. We'll see y'all next week. <laughs>